the Global Burden of Disease Study, which is the largest study of human risk factors for disease and death in history, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, found that the number one cause of death in the Western world is our diet. We evolved in the context of scarcity, right? So we have this craving for calorically dense foods, lots of calories packed into a small space. Food industry, uh, likewise, employs these, what are they called, taste engineers, you know, to make sure we can't just eat one to get this super stimulatory, hyper palatal, hyper salty, hyper fatty, hyper sugary foods, um, which undermine the natural biological barriers to keep consumption within uh, reasonable limits. Basic lifestyle behaviors can have dramatic consequences um, in terms of longevity and health. If we only had a few tweaks, if we just had a few things to our diet, it'd be berries, greens, and legumes, I think. And if we just had three things to remove from our diet, it'd be processed meats, uh, trans fats, and soda. Dear listeners, this show is brought to you by Freeletics. Building a fitness routine took my life to a new level. Energy, confidence, health, feeling good about my body, staying young and agile. But most of us find it enormously difficult to build such a routine. The motivation is lacking, the workouts feel bad, the plan doesn't adapt, the success doesn't materialize. But it is possible to be healthy, fit, and enjoy your life. Because I certainly did not want to be held hostage to a fitness routine or feel that I am somehow missing out on life just to be fit. For those willing to invest a few minutes of their day to develop a determined lifelong workout routine, Freeletics offers a simple lifestyle, personalized workout plans, and data-driven insights to maximize your likelihood of success while having fun. Start now at freeletics.com. Also, this show is sponsored by Stadia. The scientifically proven benefits of training with weights are indisputable. For the major physiological systems in your body, such as muscle size, strength, athletic performance, functional capacity, also for the increase in bone density and the improvements in cardiovascular, cognitive, and psychological health. Working out with weights is almost a magic bullet. And now you can have all of these benefits at home. Stadium offers you high quality, stylish weight training equipment that you will love to have lying around your place. Get it at stadium.com. Thank you for supporting the show and checking out our sponsors. And now, Let's start with the conversation. Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Dr. Michael Greger. Michael is a physician, New York Times bestselling author, and internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. A founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, Michael is licensed as a general practitioner specialized in clinical nutrition. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Honored to be on. Could you help us understand the connection between our standard American diet or just generally the standard diet that we in Western countries typically eat and the common health issues we see today using some key examples in scientific background? Yeah, so the Global Burden of Disease Study, which is the largest study of human risk factors for disease and death in history, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, found that the number one cause of death in the Western world is our diet. So for example, here in the States, cigarettes, killer number two, only kill about a half million Americans every year, whereas our diet kills many more. And that's primarily because, for example, heart disease is the number one killer in high-income countries, and, uh, and uh, about 80% of uh, heart disease risk can be mediated by diet and lifestyle interventions. What did they take as a baseline? So when they say, okay, diet is the 
um, is the killer number one. There must have been a baseline basically saying, okay, if we would compare that to a good diet, a good lifestyle, that's the delta in deaths that, or the reduction deaths that we would see. So how do they think about this baseline diet? Yeah, so um, basically the five, the five most uh, intensive predictors of diet and mortality, morbidity put together, disease and death, is uh, number one, inadequate intake of whole grains. Number two, inadequate intake of fruit. Number three, inadequate intake of nuts and seeds. Number four, inadequate intake of vegetables. And number five is diets too high in sodium. So actually four out of the five dietary contributors to death are things we're actually even not eating enough of. Um, and, the, um, and in terms of the one thing, to, if we were going to avoid the food component, um, would be sodium, um, uh, one of the leading dietary risk factors for death. Is it a correct assumption that when um, they say we're not eating enough, that indirectly you would substitute some of the other foods that you're eating with what you mentioned, the whole, you know, the whole grain, yeah. the fruit, the vegetables? The, yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. When you see population studies, these epidemiological studies, observing association between you know, vegetable consumption and good health outcomes, is it because of the vegetables themselves or is it because of what the vegetables replaced? And that's a critical factor in really all these types of observational data and nutrition studies. What would you be eating instead? So when it comes to nutrition, foods aren't so much good or bad, but better or worse. So asking a question like, are eggs good for you? You really have to follow that up by well, compared to what? Compared to the breakfast sausage next to it? Absolutely. Compared to oatmeal? Not even close, right? And so you can do similar things. Is fish good for you? Ah, better tuna fish salad is better than, you know, a BLT or bologna sandwich. Um, but would, you know, hummus be better, for example? And so, you know, I think of eating as kind of a zero-sum game. Every time we put something in our mouth, it's a lost opportunity to put something even healthier in our mouth. Are bananas healthy? Not compared to blueberries. So if you had a choice of what to put on that oatmeal, if you have access to blueberries, that would be a better choice. We can always kind of ratchet up the healthfulness of our diets at every meal. Is there, um, is there a way to, and maybe we'll get later to that, but is there a way for our listener to mentally draw a line where you would say, um, hey, dear listener, that's a nutritional behavior. That's something that you're eating that really you should not eat. I know there's a little bit of a stigma with saying, you know, you shouldn't eat, but you shouldn't eat versus, right. okay, it's it's fine, but you could go better, you know, especially for right. those people looking for an 80-20 lifestyle guidance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think the way you describe it is good. It's not so much do not eat, but do not eat regular, like on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis. And so the healthiest foods tend to be whole plant foods. That's fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, nuts and seeds, mushrooms, herbs, and spices, basically real food that grows out of the ground. These are our healthiest choices. I'm going to come back to um, what you just said on, you know, whole food vegetables and also this topic around meat versus um, vegetables a little bit later. Before we dive into this, um, it, from your perspective, what's the trend? So how have, you know, changes in the food system or in, in our preferences over the past few decades changed? Um, how have these impacted our health? Um, how bad has the diet already been 30, 40, 50 years ago? Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, what are the causes of the changes that you might explain now? Well, you know, the probably the most visible, like walk out on the street, the most visible changes you see is really the obesity epidemic, which is fueled by the explosion of ultra processed foods. You know, obesity is not some moral failing, right? The battle of the bulge is a battle against biology. We're living in a toxic food environment, floating in a sea of excess calories, drowning in a sea of excess calories, but being bombarded by ads for fast food and candy. You know, being overweight is a normal 
natural response to this abnormal, unnatural ubiquity of sugary, fatty foods that are concentrated in calories. Why are the processed foods so impactful or why are they such a big reason for that obesity um, pandemic? And um, what are pro, um, processed foods? Yeah, so the uh, the rise in calorie surplus, which more than explains the obesity epidemic, is really less of a change in food quantity. It's not like we're eating more, but rather in food quality. With the explosion of these cheap, high-calorie, uh, uh, low-quality convenience foods, you know, you can kind of think um, of, uh, you know, Twinkie, for example, a snack cake. You know, with enough time and effort, you know, any ambitious cook can create a cream-filled cake, you know, in their own kitchen. Uh, but today they're available for, you know, less than a dollar at every corner uh, store. And so, look, if every time you wanted a Twinkie, you had to bake one yourself, we would eat less Twinkies. Um, but there's just been, you know, actually uh, cigarette production. Um, is actually a compelling parallel. Before automated, automatic, uh, these uh, these rolling machines were invented, cigarettes were rolled by hand. Um, and so once you had that automated cigarette uh, rolling machine, cigarette prices plunged, production leaped into the billions. Cigarette smoking went from a really rare phenomenon. Um, uh, like uh, here in the States, average per capita cigarette consumption rose at the beginning of the last century from about 50 cigarettes a year to 4,000 cigarettes a year by 1964. It's half a pack a day for every person um, in the States, the average American. So like one cigarette a week to 20 a day. Um, and it's because, I mean, look, tobacco itself was just as addictive before and after, right? But what changed was this greater opportunity for cheap, easy access. Um, just like, you know, we now see this aggressively marketed, ubiquitous, tasty, cheap calories that dig into our biolog natural biological urges. You know, we, we, we evolved in the context of scarcity, right? So we have this craving for calorically dense foods, lots of calories packed into a small space. So that's fatty foods, um, uh, sugary foods. And of course, we have this craving for salt as well, because there weren't, you know, Kentucky Fried Chickens and salt shakers out on the African savanna. Um, and so the food, the processed food industry says, ah, oh, if this is what people deep down are urging for, well, let's just strip everything away. Who needs fiber? Who needs? Let's just go straight and go straight with the sugar, fat, salt um, to really kind of to, to, to dig in to those natural biological drives, turn them against us. Um, and they've been very effective um, in, uh, in marketing these kind of products um, to our detriment, unfortunately. If I may uh, summarize what you said to check whether, uh, whether I got that right. So um, when you talked about what's the reason why these processed foods are so detrimental for us, it's one is just availability. They're just all, everywhere available, it's very easy. To, to, to get those types of food. You, um, you don't have to cook, you don't have to, you don't have to go somewhere grocery shopping and put 25 different ingredients together and think about it, you just grab something. So that's one, just availability. The other thing is, is um, the, 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 the quality and I would, I would, I think I understood two things. One is um, it's actually calorie density on the one thing because it's much easier to eat a Snickers bar that has 500 calories versus I don't know, almost a kilogram of, of, of potatoes that has 600 calories or something like that. I mean, who would be able to eat a kilogram of potatoes at, at what, uh, but uh, a Snickers or two? Super easy. So that's the second one. And the third thing is that um, you alluded to that these foods are created, designed in a way that make them as easy for you to eat as possible, as tasty. They trigger all the brain circuits that have been evolving throughout evolution saying this is a this is a food you need to eat it because you don't know when you're going to get something um to eat the next time is that about yeah, are these yeah, the main yeah. things exactly and you know in the plague of tobacco related deaths wasn't just due to the mass manufacture and, and marketing of cheap cigarettes they went out of their way to spray sheets of tobacco with extra nicotine and similarly the food industry uh, likewise, employs these what they're called taste engineers, you know, to make sure we can't just eat one 
to get this super stimulatory, hyper palatable, hyper salty, hyper fatty, hyper sugary foods, um, which which kind of uh, undermine the natural biological barriers to keep consumption within uh, reasonable limits. When I when I listen to you, it it sounds a lot that the availability in the design of food, which means the food industry in that sense, and I have said that you didn't say that. I'm I'm saying that the food industry in that sense is a bigger part of the problem than actually the consumer. Um, that's now on the losing side of I'm obese and 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 I and I feel bad and and I'm and I'm unhealthy. At the same time, we as consumers, because we're buying these products and we're buying them more i mean on average more than the healthy options the going to the um to through the supermarket and and all of these kind of things that we're incentivizing and rewarding this offering or this behavior from from the food industry um would you just generally do you think that's right or where did i get that wrong and and if that is the case how could we change the system so that independent from my individual choices, which are important and I have the, 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 the power to take these decisions for myself, but independent of putting that responsibility to me to make other choices, how the environment can be changed to help me make these better choices. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to imagine some kind of conspiracy, but I mean, it's really just, this is the way business works. These are the current incentives. So it's not like the head of Coca-Cola is rubbing their hands together thinking, how can I contribute to the childhood you know, obesity epidemic? It's how can I satisfy you know, my shareholders for the next quarter, earnings? And if they all of a sudden decided that we should stop selling you know, brown sugar water to kids, well, then they'd get booted out and replaced by another CEO that would. Why, why sell? Why? Because it, it's all profit. Right. I mean, sugar is a subsidized industry. Taxpayers actually pay to make sugar artificially cheap. And so it's, you know, the, the ingredients are pennies per bottle and you sell for a few bucks. It's all profit. Whereas something healthy like produce goes bad. It's the worst possible investment. I mean, it rots on the shelf. You want something with shelf life. You want a Twinkie that sits on the shelf for a few weeks. That's how you make money. And produce isn't even branded. Like, so it's not like, You'll never see an ad on the Super Bowl for sweet potatoes because even a sweet potato grower, you know, you'll just buy their your comp their competitors' sweet potatoes. Like, I mean, there's just the whole system is set up um, to promote the 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 selling of profitable products, and unfortunately, the profit the ones that make the most profit are the worst for our health. So we really have to kind of uh, you know take uh, our own families. Um, and ourselves, we take responsibility um, and choose healthier choices because they don't have our best interests at heart. What can we do uh, public policy-wise? I think we really need to either remove or shift agriculture subsidies so we are not, you know, making cheap feed crops for dollar menu burgers, um, not uh, subsidizing the sugar industry, but rather, if we're going to subsidize anything, why not subsidize fruits and vegetables? And the reason is because um, I can certainly only speak to the to the U.S. situation, but the tremendous lobbying power of uh, the processed food industry, the meat and dairy um, industry, in 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 locking these subsidies in place, and you know the you know the the Apple board just doesn't quite have the same sway. Do you think that um, politicians in general are aware of that issue and maybe even would want to change anything about it. But because of you're locked in this every four years, you have to get reelected. There's all the lobbying power that you said. Also, people will likely um, not like if, if, if suddenly, you know, most of these foods that they like to eat and regularly eat are not available anymore or twice or three times as expensive. And so, you, you know, how much is this a, a topic or a question of the conclusion is still debated and, 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 and there are very different opinions towards whether what we have just discussed is the truth or there's some other factor versus yeah, it's accepted, but the system makes it very difficult to change something about it. Yeah, it's not just uh, economics, the economic incentives. There certainly are personal biases. You certainly see that in medicine, 
where, you know, back in the 50s, before the Surgeon General report here in the States, most doctors smoke cigarettes. So you can imagine, despite this overwhelming mountain of evidence that had been accumulating from the 1930s, you could imagine how the doctor themselves would have this conflict about telling their patients not to, not to smoke. And similarly, doctors today continue to eat foods that are contributing to our epidemics of dietary diseases. And so, you know, there's that, you know, it's that, that it's difficult, I think, for them um, to, uh, you know, uh, to take the kind of the hypocritical stance to, uh, you know, uh, tell their patients to eat healthier. Then let's shift gears and go from that systematic responsibility towards what we as an individual can do. And with that to the book that you have written that is very famous that I have read, and that is How Not to Die. Um, well, first of all, maybe for our listeners uh, as, a, as a good introduction, what is the foundational principle um, or insight that you describe in, in your book? And why do you believe it holds the potential to revolutionize our health? Yeah, the book, the, 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 the theme of the book is really the good news, that we have tremendous power over our health, destiny, and longevity. The vast majority of premature death and disability is preventable with healthy enough diet and lifestyle behaviors. And what would these diet and lifestyle behaviors be? Is there a way to give a high-level summary before we then go a little bit deeper into some of the nuances of that? Yeah, well, um, as I noted before, with the Global Burden of Disease Day, uh, there's a variety of risk factors for death and disease, including um, being sedentary and, and, uh, and you know, smoking, etc. But number one on the list is diet. That's why I've dedicated my life to the study of nutrition. Um, and so, uh, and so, most of the book "How Not to Die" really, really focuses on the dietary changes you can make, ending up with the conclusion that really we should try to center our diets around uh, whole plant foods, minimizing our intake of meat, eggs, dairy, and junk, maximizing our intake of those whole plant foods I mentioned before. Um, how accepted? Um, or unambiguous is the research so far on the the benefits of a whole food plant based diet, um, especially also when it comes to not necessarily comparing it with the standard diet, but let's say a more omnivore diet that mm. is, but that is also organic and let, let let's say as healthy as as meat can be. Uh, which parts are still controversial? Well, you know, that was the whole uh, reason behind the formation of the True Health Alliance. People can go to a True, excuse me, True Health Initiative. You go to truehealthinitiative.org. It was really, this was formed by Dr. David Katz, who is uh, past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He realized that there's just this kind of whiplash with media sources, you know, uh, putting up clickbait headlines where, you know, coffee's good for you one day, not good for you the next day, and pe leaving people really confused, which is, of course, exactly where the processed food industry wants them to be. They want people to just kind of throw up their hands and eat whatever's put in front of them, similar to the tobacco industry. The tobacco industry, you know, we now have uh, these internal memos. Uh, it wasn't that they wanted, they needed to convince people that smoking was good for you. They just had to introduce doubt. In fact, there's a famous memo called Doubt is Our Product. They wanted to uh, they, all they need to do is have smokers think, well, and some people say it causes lung cancer. Some people say it don't. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and so uh, that's where the True Health Initiative came through. It's kind of like the IPCC of nutrition. Like, what do you want? You know, you know there's so much controversy or manufactured controversy about um, climate change. Well, let's ask, let's get hundreds of the best climate scientists together to agree to a consensus statement on what is actually happening. That's probably our best approximation to reality. And so similarly, True Health Initiative gathered hundreds of the top nutrition scientists from around the world to agree on a consensus statement as to what's the healthiest diet for human beings and concluded um, that we should eat a diet um, composed mostly of these minimally processed plant foods. And so when we talk about minimally processed plant foods for, for our listeners, 
We're talking about all types of vegetables. I would assume most of the fruits or all of the fruits that you would take into in, into this. Um, how about things that are typically have a high share in in our diets? Um, rice, bread, pasta, um, potatoes. Uh, can, can eat, and and maybe from your um, from your experience, when people change to such a diet, just super high level. What are some some of the things that people that eat for breakfast, for lunch, for for dinner, to give our listeners a picture of what we're looking at here? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I define processed food as being, or unprocessed food as being nothing bad added, nothing good taken away. Um, and so anytime, you know, you're adding salt, you're adding sugar, then that's a processed food. Anytime you're removing something like fiber or um, then that's, that's a, that's a, that's a, so for example, white rice is a processed food, brown rice is an unprocessed food. Um, uh, and so that's kind of how I look at it. Um, and, uh, then in terms of, what was the second half of your question? Yeah, it was, what are people, what do people then like? Oh yeah. And then what do people eat? Well, I, you know, yeah, I center my, uh, my, the second half of the, so the first half of how not to die is just 15 chapters on each of the 15 leading causes of death, talking about the role of diet, um, to, in the prevention, arrest, or even reversal sometimes of our top 15 killers, but I didn't want it just to just be kind of a reference book. I wanted it to be a practical day-to-day, -day, you know, grocery store kind of um, guide. And so the second half of the book centers around um, my, my daily dozen recommendation for all the healthiest of healthy foods. I encourage people to fit into their daily diet. So not just vegetables every day, but specifically the healthiest vegetables, dark green leafy vegetables, not just fruits every day, but specifically berries. Every day, the healthiest fruits, a tablespoon of ground flaxseed, a teaspoon of turmeric. I kind of go down the list. It's available on a free app, iPhone, Android, Dr. Greger's Daily Dozen. Um, and so those are the kind of foods I encourage people to fit in. And it's like, well, how do you put it all together? I've got a number of cookbooks. There's a How Not to Diet cookbook, How Not to Diet cookbook, um, where, you know, we take that Daily Dozen um, and, you know, and, and create recipes that not just Every single recipe is healthy, but every single ingredient of every single recipe is healthy. And so, you know, how do you make things sweet without sugar or salty without salt? These are some of the challenges we had, but uh, people seem to be really happy with it. I'm going to link those in the show notes. I think one, one thing that would be very powerful would be um, to get a feeling from you. Now, assume I'm today a 30-year-old male or female. And I have been on a either standard diet or maybe slightly better because our audience will likely have a slightly better diet than that. And now after having listened to you, I take the switch, turn it around. I will move to, let's say, 85% um, unprocessed, whole food, plant-based. How on average, of course, this is completely an average, but how on average, how different will I feel, look, and be, sir, from my health in one year and in 30 years from now? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, uh, you know, one of my favorite ways that I see people transition is using these so-called Jumpstart programs or Kickstart program. Um, there's one uh, available free called the 21daykickstart.org. That's run by an organization, by a organization Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Starts at the first of every month. It's free, a bunch of different languages. Hundreds of thousands of people have gone through it. Basically, it's just, uh, you know, let's dive all in for 21 days. Um, uh, and, uh, and you can kind of sign up as like a social media group and you get daily tips and advice and recipes, et cetera. Um, and the hope is that after tw just 21 days that you'll actually feel so good um, that it's no longer just a doctor, you know, waving their finger in your face, but your own body is telling you, you know, your digestion is better, your energy is better, your sleep is better, uh, less painful periods, kind of on down the list, um, that, um, and, you know, you don't know how good you're going to feel till you give it a try. So that's what I really encourage people to do. I mean, you know, as a physician, I have the luxury of being able to show people their numbers. You know, we can take labs before and after. We can actually see what's happening inside their body. Um, but even without that, you should get a sense of even just in that short of time, um, you have you have that kind of internal motivation to stick with it. But of course, 
three wings ain't going to do anything. I mean, these, I mean, it's really not what you eat on a day-to-day basis, certainly not what you eat on birthdays, holidays, special occasions, but it's day-to-day what you eat on average over literally decades that really determines your fate in terms of these chronic diseases like hypertension and type 2 diabetes and heart disease. Um, and so that's what you would expect in the long term is significantly lower rates of the leading killers of men and women. And have you seen any, I mean, in that case, because it's observational, it can likely only be correlation-based, but have you seen any correlation with um, how people look after 20, 30 years when you differ these diets, both in terms of you, you know, body composition, fat versus muscle, maybe alter how does the skin look? Um, you know, ultimately, we humans are motivated by things like that, too. Yeah, no, I'm in fact, that's the, you know, I, my uh, new book coming out in December, How Not to Age, really focuses a lot on that kind of, you know, skin aging, some of the kind of more kind of superficial aspects of health. Um, but you don't even need to rely on observational studies. You can do randomized controlled trials where you randomize people to eat uh, more fruits and vegetables, for example, and the, and the carotenoid com- uh, deposition into their skin. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, like orange compounds like beta carotene gives people this kind of healthy glow that people prefer. This works for both Caucasian, Asian and uh, and uh, and African skin. Um, and uh, and so, you know, you can rate uh, basically physical attractiveness. That was the end point. And you see those randomized to eat lots of these healthy fruits and vegetables um, just look better within a matter of six weeks. So you don't even have to wait years to get this kind of healthy glow, this rosy glow for the improved um, uh, 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 circulation, uh, particularly if eating nitrate-rich foods like the greens and um, uh, beets, et cetera. Um, and so uh, you can you know, literally see in a month or two, um, and then over the long term, I'm trying to think, I mean, there's certainly skin aging studies um, that show that um, you know, randomized people to sunscreen, for example, significantly improves, um, slows down skin aging. But I haven't seen kind of appearance, long-term appearance um, data. That's really typically not what the kind of understandably what the, the medical uh, uh, establishment is is, uh, is interested in. Yeah, I, I was wondering because I don't know whether there have been studies but with i think so you know when it comes to alcohol consumption when it comes to cigarette consumption um i i think oh. i don't want to misrepresent you but i think oh, yeah. there have been studies that also have been focusing on on external factors obviously always with an internal reasoning for for that but on external yeah, yeah. factors and when yeah. we talk about cutting out most of your processed foods cutting out these type of chemicals these chemicals that react with your bodily systems just my natural assumption would have been that also there, um, because to a certain extent, your skin also shows and mirrors your inner um, your, your inner health, um, that there is also um, some type of causation there. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes, there is um, smoking data, and that was trying to inspire people based on appearance, uh, particularly teens, to stop smoking. They're less interested in breast cancer and heart disease, you know, but they are interested in whether it's going to give them acne or improve their athletic performance or, uh, you know, or, uh, or look better. And indeed, um, uh, they were able to come up with these algorithms where, you know, you can, you know, this is how you're going to look in 20 years, um, smoking this much versus not smoking this much. And you really see kind of a dramatic difference. And that was indeed based on observational studies of those um, uh, of smokers versus non-smokers. Can I ask you still so a couple of more questions, a bit on the nuances of that that diet? Um, first, starting with my 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 gut feeling assumption is that most of our listeners might not be interested to go a hundred percent, you know, um, only plant based whole food, but they could very well imagine going a very big percentage on that. Where do you think is basically the the, the the percentage where say yeah actually you really get most of the health benefits? Could I, for example, eat eighty percent plant based whole food, twenty percent are um, are um, animal based products? I try to optimize them for being organic, you know, meat, fish, um, eggs. Um, how would you rate that? I understand it's not 
absolutely perfect, but um, in the in the light of the overall diets uh, d- diets that are available. Oh, I, I mean, we cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Any shift we can make. Um, yeah, yeah, towards eating healthier, towards living healthier can have dramatic consequences. And in fact, uh, I uh, just been working on this How Not to Age presentation and I end the talk, you know, after going into all the nitty gritty about, you know, aging pathways and all the new science. So let's take a step back and look at some of the basics when it comes to, you know, lifestyle behaviors and found that people who follow simple lifestyle behaviors, meaning walking 20 minutes a day, not being obese, not smoking, um, eating just five servings of fruits and vegetables every day, um, tend to live on average um, as much as 18 years longer if they start before age 50. And so we're talking dramatic life exp- extension. That's the kind of life extension we see in these kind of lab- fancy laboratory animals, um, experiments that have not tended to translate out. So we already have that trillion-dollar anti-aging pill that biotech has been promising us. We just effectively have to administer it in the produce aisle in the gym, um, uh, but simple lifestyle behavior. So that's that's the vast majority, just the simple stuff. Now, if you want to tweak it and see if you can get a little better, great. I'm all in favor, but it's really just the real simple, basic stuff. Let's not be sedentary. Um, you know, let's eat more fruits and vegetables. I mean, so, you know, I, I'm afraid when people you know, go to my site, go to nutritionfacts.org, see these thousands of videos about all the nitty gritty, you know, this kind of flaxseed is better than this kind of flaxseed. I don't want people to, you know, lose the, you know, the forest for the trees and realize just basic lifestyle behaviors can have dramatic consequences um, in terms of longevity and health. Um, And so that really should be the message. You know, it's like physical activity, right? I'm sure, you know, they, in fact, the, the diet, the physical activity guidelines, at least here in the States, have actually been shrinking. Now, currently, it's only about recommended 20 minutes of aerobic exercise a day. Now, that's not because the science says 20 minutes is the best, but they're trying to do this balance between what's achievable, what's not going to have people just throw their hands up and forget about it. You know, any amount of exercise is better than none. So saying that, okay, yeah, the data really does say 90 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise a day or 45 vigorous every day really does seem to be the best. But, um, you know, we shouldn't be scared to say that. I mean, we really should kind of put out the ideal at the same time, emphasizing any is better than none. Even 15 minutes a day walking associated with significantly lower risk of premature death. Absolutely. Um, the, the minimum effective dose for resistance training is if you really want to have a certain level of muscle um, high, so strength and hypertrophy gain is two times 35 minutes per week if you, if you focus on compound exercises with, with uh, weights. Um, it's nowhere near close this, what people often think you have to hit the gym five, six times per week for hours long. So I'm absolutely for finding this 80-20 um, balance. Um, when going back to the plant-based diets, are there certain lifestyles where it could be beneficial to use a, a mostly plant-based whole food diet, but add 10 to 20% of, for example, um, organic uh, meats and fish-based products? So I'm talking about mostly two areas here. The one is um, performance. Uh, so hypertrophy and strength, for example, hypertrophy and speed. So everything that you would call um, performance and muscle building. And the other one is, and th- th- that might get a little bit more complex. I'm going to try to phrase it well. Um, I would assume that most of the research that you're citing and that you base um, your recommendations on are really hardcore scientific physical facts. People have eaten this and they have done that, and therefore, you know, you 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 come to those conclusions. Um, we, in our experience uh, at Fuletics, have seen very often that certain types of food also have a psychological impact on people. And the example that I want to give here is that um, people, when they successfully start to change their exercise habits, often 
imagine themselves as a different person. They they take a new personality. I'm now the person who goes to the gym, who's healthy, who looks good, who's strong, and all of these kind of things. It's very it's very powerful motiv- motivation because it goes to your core fundamental values. And in that, they sometimes have a picture. For example, in order to do that, I need to have high quality protein and the right mi- mi- micronutrients. And these I I get. Um, in a better way, which is more available, and and so on and so forth via um, via meat and animal products, and so because I because I consume um, meat animal products, I feel more in that lifestyle because I'm more in that lifestyle. I go more into the gym because I go more into the gym and stay in that lifestyle. Overall, my life will develop well, and I'm going to be healthy um, and so on. So that's this psychological aspect that I was trying to explain. So to summarize it again, one was, is there sometimes a psychological aspect to it where uh, overall the benefits are better, um, are greater than taking that food out? And the other one is when it purely comes to um, performance and muscle optimization, not longevity in the, you know, really longevity, um, is there a case to make for a non-purely plant-based diet? Yeah, I was hoping you were going to say that the psychological impact of people feeling better and envisioning themselves as healthy, active people would get them to be like, you know, I really have to keep this body healthy and so eat healthier foods. I got to eat more fruits and vegetables than I was before. Unfortunately, it sounds like they're going in the opposite direction. Um, so increasing- uh, That was just an example for one type uh-huh. of person. There are definitely right, also man. others that, that you, like you have described. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, plant-based foods have, can have these vasodilatory, artery dilating, antioxidant, and anti-inflammatory properties that can improve blood flow, reduce oxidative stress, um, reduce inflammation, thus have the potential to enhance um, endurance performance, reduce muscle damage, speed recovery. Um, we certainly know there's these ergogenic or performance-enhancing effects of nitrate, the vegetable nitrates um, found in beets, spinach, other greens. Um, uh, which may explain why you, if when you randomize people um, to uh, eat a plant-based diet, you can get a 12% bump in VO2 max or kind of aerobic capacity, improving maximal performance. Um, and this is just in a matter of weeks. Um, and so these are some of the reasons why we may see that. And then, of course, in the long term, um, it's really the health benefits, um, reducing the risk of chronic illness, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. Um, and so it's hard to really separate. We're like, let's not talk about longevity. Let's just talk about kind of, you know, uh, performance. But, you know, <laughs> your performance is going to suffer, um, certainly if you, uh, you know, suffer a stroke, et cetera. And you say, wait a second, do high performance athletes really have to worry about kind of cardiovascular disease protection? And indeed, they fact, may in fact have to worry even more. Um, uh, so uh, I was surprised. Um, and so I did a series of videos about it. Endurance athletes may have more advanced atherosclerosis, more heart muscle damage compared to sedentary individuals. Male athletes, higher prevalence of atherosclerotic plaque in their carotid arteries feeding their heart compared to sedentary males, higher prevalence of, of coronary artery calcium scores, more atherosclerotic plaques, more uh, multi-vessel plaques, greater proportion squeezing off the blood flow, um, more than 50%. Marathon runners, Increased atherosclerotic plaque, calcified plaques, non-calcified plaques. So there's this paradox, right? Worse atherosclerosis, um, three times more heart damage to the heart muscle itself than matched sedentary individuals. And you say, wait a second, what is going on? How is that possible? Um, it's not that we're overstressing our heart with movement, but rather overstressing our heart with saturated fat and cholesterol. Endurance athletes can eat five, 6,000 calories a day. So if you're eating twice the Big Max, no wonder your heart's going to get hammered, right? And so that's where healthy diets come in. Plant-based diet is the only diet ever proven to reverse heart disease in the majority of patients, the number one killer of men and women. I mean, so if that's all a plant-based diet can do, reverse the number one killer, I mean, shouldn't that kind of be the default diet until proven otherwise? And the fact that it also be so effective preventing, arresting, reversing other leading killers, the high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, would seem to make the case for plant-based eating really simply overwhelming. Athletic performance suffers when you're dead. In, uh, in, I mean, uh, the, these are very compelling um, starts and arguments. Um, 
to 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 re to to recap or to try to understand it. So when you said that, hey, there's um, you know, there was that study looked at cardiovascular health of of um high intent like um of endurance athletes um versus sedentary, and hey, there was endurance athletes they had actually worse they were worse in their health versus the sedentary where you where you intuitively would think exactly the uh, opposite. And then um, the reason for that, if I understood that correctly, is that these endurance athletes, um, while um, not being overweight because they burn so much calories, but when they consume their food, even though they're lower than their, you know, they, they consume less than they burn, so they're they are um, are in a um, negative or balanced calorie um, calorie equation. They, because of the amounts of food that have the let's say bad ingredients, the saturated fat, all of that kind of stuff, that's the reason for why they had uh, worse cardiovascular health compared to the sedentary people. And so, what would happen if you would compare? If you wouldn't compare like this, um, in your sense, ideal diet, it's plant-based whole food as close to 100% as possible versus this um, diet that um, still has all these, um, you know, saturated fat, bad ingredients, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. But what would happen if you would compare that to a diet that had 80% of what you're called your ideal diet and 20% of as high quality organic lean meat and beef um and fatty fish as 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 possible do you have a sense of how that would compare maybe if you can if you have that data both more in the nearer term when it comes to performance and and, and muscle growth and in the longer term when it comes to longevity right that's a critical distinction to make right when they're looking at these uh, these endurance athletes, they're looking at people eating standard Western diets, right? And so if you're eating twice the number of Twinkies, well, obviously you're going to have a worse health. Um, even if you're not obese, you can still suffer these metabolic insults. Um, and so what you're describing is going towards the best of both worlds, a healthy, active lifestyle and fueling that active lifestyle with healthy foods. Um, and if you look at, you know, the longest, healthiest populations around the world, they're not eating strictly plant-based, right? They're eating 90 to 95% plant-based. And so it's certainly not all or nothing, um, certainly not black or white. Any movement we can make towards improving um, our diet, the better. Um, and that is, you know, if we only had a few tweaks, if we just had a few things to our diet, it'd be berries, greens, and legumes, I think. And if we just had three things to remove from our diet, it would be processed meats, uh, trans fats, and soda. Um, and even just those, add those three, remove those three, even that would go a long way towards making people healthier. And then if you're talking people eating 80% healthy whole plant foods, I mean, that is just light years beyond what um, you see in the general population. And that's just, uh, and uh, they would certainly dramatically benefit from that kind of lifestyle. Okay, so if we zone into this, hey, a huge part of, and, and I think we, we, we both agree on that, a huge part of your diet should be whole-based plant food. Um, and then depending on where you want to come out, a few percentage on the most healthiest options in the other buckets. In my, in, in my case, that's why I was asking so much about that. It was animal-based products. You will still, on average, um, be or drive very good with that diet, especially if you compare that to cohorts that use a, a standard diet. Um, Even compared to cohorts eating healthy diets. I mean, what you're describing is an extremely healthy diet. Absolutely. Is there, um, is there the risk to miss out on any micronutrients if you do a completely plant-based? So do I have to take any type of supplements uh, in order to account for that? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought it up. Critically important. There are two um, vitamins that are not made by plants. Uh, one is vitamin D made by animals such as ourselves when we walk outside as a sunshine vitamin. But if you're living in the UK in the you know, winter months, you're not going to be making sufficient vitamin D for optimal health. So I'd encourage you to supplement um, your diet um, with uh, vitamin D. Um, and similarly, no matter where you live, you're not getting sufficient sun exposure. You need to get 
Um, a source of vitamin D, I recommend 2,000 international units a day of vitamin D3 for those getting inadequate sun exposure. The only other vitamin not made by plants is vitamin B12, which is not made by animals either, but made by little microbes that blanket the earth. So you know, we used to get uh, you know B12 drinking out of a mountain stream or well water or something, but now we chlorinate our water supply to kill off any bacteria. So don't get a lot of B12 in our water anymore. Don't get a lot of cholera either. That's good that we have a nice sanitary um, system. Um, but that means people eating plant-based diets uh, need a regular reliable source of vitamin B12. Our fellow great apes get all the B12 they need eating bugs, dirt, and feces. I prefer supplements myself. So 2,000 micrograms of uh, vitamin B12 once a week. Um, the most shelf-stable form is cyanocobalamin. Um, there's also daily doses. Or you can get it in B12 fortified foods. I have a lot of videos about that. But critically important for anyone eating plant-based diets, there are um, in the in the uh, digestive tracts of of certain animals have B12 producing bacteria which diffuse into their flesh. And so people who are eating meat get their B12 can get their B12 that way. But after age 50, according to the National Academy of Sciences, which is the most prestigious scientific body here in the U.S., everyone over age 50 needs to get um, their B12 from supplemental from a supplement or fortified food since we can't extract B12 um, sufficiently after that age um, from uh, from animal foods. And so basically anyone eating plant-based just needs to push that 50 um, earlier um, throughout their lives, particularly critical for pregnant women, infants, breastfeeding um, women, because they start out with no B12 at birth um, in, unless their mother had been supplementing. Um, okay, so vitamin D, vitamin B12, these are the two things um, we need to look out for if we're on a very, very high plant-based uh, diet. One and other, even, you know, in fact, even, 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 let me, I'm sorry, just to, even B12, even if you're on a predominantly plant-based diet, um, I would encourage people to get B12 just because you don't want to mess around with it. Got it. Uh, one other one last one last topic um and i want to headline it with with a very high level statement and then give some nuance so can you outwork a bad out out workout a bad diet i mean we have already gone deep enough into the topic that you know i understand i and the listeners already understand that no you cannot really outwork uh a terrible diet we had that example with the with the with the endurance athletes but when it go, when we're not at the very far extremes, um, how much when it comes to longevity and health, really, not necessarily whether I'm thin or or anything like that. How much when it comes to longevity and health, um, what do you think is better? Would it be I am on a sixty percent optimal diet, I know this is very brush stroke here, but sixty percent optimal diet, but almost on a a hundred percent optimal workout schedule in terms of consistency, in terms of what I do, how uh, how I recover, and all of these kind of things. Or would you rather want to be on a you know fifty percent optimal workout schedule? You know, there's actually really some room for improvement, but it's but it's okay. Um, but on a 90% optimal diet. Yeah, you know, even in terms of obesity, which we think would be particularly amenable to exercise, you can't outrun a, outrun a bad diet. A moderately obese person doing, you know, moderate intensity physical activity like biking, very brisk walking, you know, burn off maybe, you know, 350 calories an hour or something. But most drinks, snacks, and, you know, processed junk are consumed at a rate of about 70 calories a minute. Right. So therefore, it only takes five minutes of snacking to wipe out a whole hour of exercise. And when it comes to the chronic diseases, I talked about the cardiovascular disease before. It's actually in terms of longevity, although the evidence supporting overall health benefits of exercise are overwhelming, its role in life extension is surprisingly still a matter of debate. Um, uh, physical activity can certainly improve muscle mass and strength, balance, mobility, decrease the risk of falls, which helps minimize uh, bone loss, um, improve cognition, enhance mood, uh, treat depression, improve artery function, erectile function, insulin sensitivity, overall quality of life. These are, there's no controversy there. Um, and observational studies have found that indeed those even walking 4,000 steps a day 
walking as little as 15 minutes a day, significantly associated with lower risk of death, with the maximum benefit of walking about 90 minutes a day or running for about 45 minutes a day. But causality, cause and effect, has not been definitively established. Um, and so I would, um, I would choose to be the healthier eater um, that's still working out, but maybe not to the kind of peak performance. I, um, I was, I was referring to you cannot, uh, you know, when when I said you 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 can or cannot work out um, a bad diet, um, we, it was an observational study, but uh, here at Philetics, um, in order to showcase the uh, the how can you think about calories in versus calories out versus the quality of your diet, uh-huh. what what we did was. Um, over a period of um, four weeks, we um, had um, participants here in, in, a, in a study, and one of them uh, both had the same amount of calories, but one of one you know the one group had that with what you would call healthy food without going into the detail here. The other group had that with um, what you would call fast food. And now, what we have seen here is that from a purely optical perspective, so looking looking at the people, especially when you look at body fat and when you look at body composition, um, I mean, it was just four weeks, but there were no significant differences between the groups because when you purely look at calories in versus calories out and a little bit of the timing of the food, that was manageable. But when it came to blood work, for example, all of these things, no question at all, the one, the healthy yeah. diet was a lot better, but... So what we do see sometimes in reality is that people from a quality perspective actually do have a quite bad diet, but because of their volume of exercise, I mean, if you exercise decent, you know, an hour every day, you can have two Big Mac meals at McDonald's and you will likely not gain weight. It's just, you know, all the other things that we've been talking about, right. all the long-term right. effects that we have been right. talking about, you, you, you're you going to have issues with those. But right. for next week, the scale next week or the scale in a sure. month will can, there, there are cases where you won't see any difference between these. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, that's to be expected. You know, when it comes to obesity, the type of food, um, can matter, particularly under longer time periods. You know, we learned in medical school that a calorie is a calorie. You know, one calorie from one food is just as fattening as a calorie from other food. But, you know, 100 calories of chickpeas has a different effect than 100 calories of chicken or chiclets based on different effects like absorption. It's not the calories you eat, but the calories you absorb, your appetite, our microbiomes. They're different foods can have different effects on our appetite. Um, and so, you know, fiber, for example, and whole intact foods can trap fiber and kind of flush them out of the body. So, um, uh, you know, so, so, and even if you eat and absorb the same amount of calories, a calorie may not be a calorie, same number of calories eaten at a different time of day or in a different meal distribution or after different amounts of sleep can translate into different amounts of body fat. Um, and so even the exact same foods eaten at different times can have different effects. So it's not just what we eat, but how, and when, and so I go a lot of those other kind of factors in my follow-up book, How Not to Diet About Obesity. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, the, the primary focus is really on food quality. Um, I agree 100% to you. What I have not said before were all, were all the disclaimers that we gave. So yes, a, a calorie is definitely not a calorie, even the thermogenic effect when you eat protein versus... I'm- Versus versus fat or or, or carbohydrates um, changes this, and also um, even though um, we did not do a gold standard um, um, randomized you know double blindfold study here, this right. is not what we did. But we right. had uh, we had a somewhat controlled environment where all the psychological factors of eating food were all the, hey, one thing is much more palatable as the other thing, um, where hey, my blood sugar goes up and crashes and I have cravings afterwards. All of these things, they um, they had much less effect on the participants because it was a somewhat controlled environment. If you in the real world out there with, with stress and you just you just having complete freedom would would try to eat uh, the same amount of calories with healthy food versus unhealthy food, there is very little chance that 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 you could actually even manage to just keep the calories at the same level, not even talking about all the other um, effects. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's a good point. Even in these laboratory controlled experiments where you can show you give people the same number of calories of junk food um, versus healthy food, you actually see different amounts of body fat going on. But they, these are, you know, ward experiments where they, you know, lock people up and give people, you know, foods you can guarantee what they're eating. Um, and so, you know, it's like, you know, we spent a lot of money on this study, showed that junk food is bad, no surprise there. And, you know, how does that translate out into the real world? It just makes it worse out in the real world because people are going to eat more of the junk food and less of the salad. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. really uh, points to a problem. Yeah. Um, I think if you leave the psychological effects out, then in the very short term, you can look at calories only if you want to, if you need to. But the more more you incorporate all the psychological factors and the more you incorporate health and longer term factors, the, the clearer it is that a calorie is only a small part of how you should think about um, food and how you should describe food. Yeah, I love this idea, this kind of psychological self-image, you know, that you kind of referred to. I wish there was more research about that, but, you know, you really want to. Um, you could imagine people just having more self-respect, just feeling better about themselves, better about their efficacy, better about their willpower. You know, you know, I can actually make positive changes in my life. Hopefully, that would kind of, you know, domino effect to other positive areas of their life. Um, and, you know, and that could be the shift more important than exactly, you know, what they're necessarily eating on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but, you know, these small percentage tweaks that we're talking about, it's this overall frame of mind of, uh, you know, do I want to treat myself this way? We are what we eat. Um, and am I worth, you know, eating healthier? Am I worth, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, taking better care of myself? Um, it's interesting that you, that you mentioned this taking on an, an identity. Um, I'm having, um, Dr. Michelle Cigar, um, on, on the show. Uh, she's an American behavioral, um, sustainability scientist. And, um, I did not have that conversation yet, so please, I, I don't want to misrepresent her, her work. How, how I understood it so far from 30,000 feet away is that one of the areas of research that she's looking into is actually this, is habit building, is, um, is, is trying to build habits. Is that an overhyped um, mm. thing? Because um, a lot of the insights from habit building have come from, you know, controlled environment studies that especially um, don't, uh, aren't true for, you know, your everyday life crazy, your parent, you have yeah. to take care of your kids and all of these things. And as a potential more powerful alternative, she suggests, or I understand that she suggests that there are these, if you take a new identity or and and define core values for yourself the self-driven motivation might give you more long-term mm -hmm. um guidance or motivation but allows you more flexibility um in in living that but uh again my disclaimer it's still from thirty thousand feet away but there seems to be some you know there, there seems to be some attention um on that topic yeah it makes sense to me yeah um, fantastic. Michael, where should our listeners go to if they want to learn more about you, um, about your work, um, about your books? I think go to nutritionfacts.org. Um, all my, it's a nonprofit, uh, uh, you know, uh, public service, basically. Everything on the website is free. There's no ads, no corporate sponsorship, strictly non-commercial, not selling anything. Just put it up as a public service. Um, and, uh, and so encourage people, uh, to check it out. Um, and, uh, all the proceeds from the sales of all my books are donated to charity. I just want everyone to, uh, be eating well and living long, healthy lives. I'm going to be coming to Europe for, uh, for a tour in January to promote, uh, my new book, How Not to Age. And hopefully we'll see folks out there on the road. Fantastic. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time, uh, Michael, and I wish you all the best with your mission. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Dear listener, this is a commentary I've recorded after the conversation with you. Diet is a complex topic and Michael and I were limited by recording time. That's why I want to share a few thoughts before ending this episode. It seems that recommending a diet predominantly consisting of whole food, unprocessed plants is great for health and longevity. What we have not explored enough though 
and where the research is still partially lacking or inconclusive are topics such as what if physical performance and hypertrophy is your goal? Next to the scientific side, what about practical considerations such as trying to eat 3000 calories plus in plants? Or whether there are cases where a diet that includes certain organic animal products is really subpar to a fully plant-based diet for health and longevity, but also considering a broader range of goals. And we didn't go into the topic of sodium, how quote unquote bad it really is and in which doses. Nonetheless, there were many valuable insights from Michael and I hope you enjoyed it. I'm happy to get questions and discuss these topics more in the future. Please check the show notes if you want to comment. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. I would love to get your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Also, if there's a special topic you would like me to address or someone specific you'd love to see on the show. If you want to support me, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating. I hope you will listen in again on the next show. Until then, all the best.